So what is the task unfinished that we just sang about in that song? And it had some pretty uh, inspiring language in it. It relates to uh, what I wanted us to think about uh, this morning. Sometimes when I get kind of late breaking news that I'll be uh, preaching, um, it'll be uh, easiest for me and hopefully then most effective for you if I return to some of the things that are the essentials and some of the things that are fundamental. And the last time it was thinking about being a Christian is all about really knowing God in a personal way, engaging with God day to day through his word and by his spirit to live in love and trust and obedience and devotion to him. And so this morning, I just wanted us to focus on another one of those essential questions, and that's this. What in the world is the church supposed to be doing right now? In this in tumultuous time, in these unprecedented times, what in the world is the church supposed to do? It's possible or, you know, to ask about what are we supposed to be preoccupied with? What's supposed to have us fired up right now? What's supposed to be engaging us as we engage with others? What's supposed to be filling our conversations and filling our thoughts as we interact with the people around us? We, the church, the disciples of Jesus Christ, engaging a troubled world around us. What are we supposed to be focused upon? And what are we supposed to be talking about? What's the unfinished task that we're supposed to be implementing? And you say, well, it's a unique time. These are unprecedented times. And we talked a little bit about this before. I certainly understand that. None of us have lived through a pandemic before. I doubt if any of you were around in 1918. Uh, so it is unprecedented in that sense. But you know, when you reflect upon it more deeply, you say, well, these are very difficult and terrible times. Well, remember Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said the last times were going to be terrible. There are different ways for them to be terrible, but we knew that difficult times were coming. And so what were we supposed to be devoted to as the church in the world during those difficult times? For the answer to that, we're going to go to a very, very familiar passage to many of us, most of us, once again to Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18, and probably your Bible has a heading on the paragraph, the Great Commission. A commission are orders about what you're supposed to be doing the task that you've been assigned. And there are different ones in the Bible, but this one's the great one. This one's the primary one, the one that is most urgently incumbent upon us as the church. Jesus, verse 18, came to them. This is the resurrected Jesus, and he's met with the disciples since his extraordinary resurrection. But this is sort of the climactic meeting, and in this meeting, this is when he comes to them and he says to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, that is, because that's true, I'm going to give you this commission in light of my universal comprehensive authority. And the commission is, go and make disciples of all the nations. That's the task. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And behold, as you carry out that commission, as you carry out that task, as you're engaged in that work, I'm with you to the very end of the age. What in the world is the church supposed to be doing right now? Making disciples. And you say, well, but there are a lot of other huge and important things that are going on. I know. But nothing is ever more important for the faithful, obedient Christian or the faithful, obedient congregation than this task. It never gets superseded. It never gets set aside for a while while we engage in something else, even very important things. In fact, and we won't have a lot of time to think about this, if we thought about it more carefully, the other important things that are going on, including the relationship between the races, some of the social issues that are uh, embroiling our society, if we would recognize, if we were well discipled and we were doing a good job of discipling others in the teachings of Jesus, we would be the agents of salt and light so desperately needed by our society right now. We would be very much well equipped to be engaged in these other issues and agents of salt and light in God's world. But Jesus says it here, it never gets superseded. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll be my witnesses. That's the task when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you trace out in the book of Acts, and that was their activity. That was their task, preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God. And so here's the outline for the message this morning. Once we've answered the question, I think unmistakably from the Great Commission, that what the, world, what the church is supposed to be doing in the world right now is making disciples, we have to again return to that central question, what is a disciple? Then we have to be reminded, well, how are disciples made? How do you make a person into a disciple? And in light of the answer to those two key questions, what is the key central task of the church in the world, the central concern for you and me as Christians? So, first, and this is basic, but it's so important, what is a disciple? Well, first of all, let me remind you, because there's strands of teaching out there that there's a difference between becoming a Christian and becoming a disciple, but there isn't one in the New Testament. The two words mean the same thing, and as I've said before, Acts 11.26 is the proof. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. I was exposed for a while to a part of Christianity, evangelical Christianity, that says you become a Christian, and then hopefully 
you become a disciple. You, you actually start obeying Jesus. But the important thing is that you pray the prayer, get saved, get heaven settled. There now, whew, now you're a Christian, and we sure hope one day you become a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Let me just say one more time, it's important, important in so many ways. That's an unbiblical distinction. Becoming a Christian in New Testament terms means you become a disciple. The words mean the same thing. Well, what then is a disciple? You hear that language still today in all kinds of different ways, but by the time you get to the end of Matthew's gospel, where the resurrected Jesus is meeting with his disciples and giving them his great commission, it's clear what the word means. And so let me summarize it this way. A disciple of Jesus is a person who is unreservedly committed to learning and living by everything that Jesus teaches and everything that he commands. All of that comes right out of those verses in Matthew 28. Make disciples, they'll be signaled in their discipleship by baptism, and you will teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So, a disciple of Jesus is a person who is unreservedly committed to learning and living by and obeying everything that Jesus taught and commanded. And I say unreservedly committed. We won't do it perfectly, but we can't willingly hold something back. That's what the rich young ruler wanted to do. Jesus said, if you want to inherit eternal life, keep the commandments. He says, I've been doing that since I was a kid. Jesus lays his finger on the real idol in his life, the real God substitute, the real rival Lord and master in his life. And he says, if you want to be complete, go and sell everything you have, then come follow me. Because his real idol was covetousness, was riches. And the man's like, no, not that. And he went away sad and lost. And Jesus said, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so a disciple of Jesus is someone who's not guarding, cherishing any pet, secret, sin, or idol. They come, and they know it may be hard. It may be a lifelong struggle. But they've taken sides against their sin with God, with Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what it means to be a disciple. Another verse like Romans 8.28, tells us that a Christian or a disciple is a person who loves God. We don't use that language as often, but when Paul is saying that all things work together for good, and he's referring to all Christians there, those who are called according to his purpose, one of the phrases that's just natural for him to use is, to the one who loves God. If you're gesture of decision, if your supposed walking of an aisle or praying of a prayer didn't turn you from a God-hating person, and we'll be there in a minute, to a God-loving person, then you're not yet a Christian in Romans 8.28 terms either. There are different ways that the Bible describes it. Remember that Jesus says, and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So we're back to the obedience to everything he commands again. 
A disciple of Jesus is also someone who is trusting in Jesus and in his saving work on the cross alone for their forgiveness and acceptance with God. What the Bible calls for being justified, declared righteous in his sight. And we learn that from passages like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. One of the things that so many of us had to repent of to profoundly change our mind about as we were coming to Christ was how we could be right with God. We thought, well, I'll start being more religiously observant or I'll get baptized or I'll join the church or this or this or this, some work of mine. The gospel has to teach us it's by grace that you're saved, through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works, not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. We learn that on the way to truly trusting in Christ as a true Christian too. So again, what is a disciple? What is a Christian? Because we're called to make people into Christians, into disciples. A disciple is a person who's come to truly believe the good news, the gospel that teaches us that Jesus is Savior, who died as a sacrifice and a substitute for my sins, and that Jesus is Lord, God's good and perfect King. A Christian is a person who has come to believe and recognize those realities. Somewhere just between here and there. Oh, there it is. Dan, if you'll give me that little gospel booklet. I just wanted to recommend this to you. Now, this is the children's version of the Two Ways to Live booklet, which I think is one of the key resources they use in Christianity Explored, which, again, would be a great way to learn and th think through these things from the Gospel of Mark. Who will be king? That's the question that the Gospel poses to every person. And I would really recommend you. It's one of those times where, well, this was written for children, but it's ex exceedingly helpful and clarifying to me, as I've read it, for adults as well. And so we have a supply of those somewhere. Uh, they may be kind of hidden away during the unprecedented times. But anyway, track down a copy of that, and I think it will help you and clarify your teaching. Also, there's a very helpful book that I've mentioned recently called Right Side Up, Living, as God, Living Life as God Meant It to Be by Paul Grimond. But just remember the title, Right Side Up. It also is, to me, very, very helpful in clearly and helpfully describing what it really means to truly come to Christ, to be taught by the gospel who he is as both Savior and Lord, and then, what does it mean to rightly respond to that truth? In that book, it says, Trusting in Jesus means firmly believing certain things to be true about Jesus. That he came into the world as God's son. That he died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. That he rose again to be God's king. And then acting in dependence and reliance upon those realities about him. A disciple has been taught by the word of God, centered in the gospel, to know and believe who Jesus really is, and then to rightly respond to that truth.
Again, from that same book, he puts it this way. Because I know and trust that Jesus is God's good and perfect king, I will fall down before him and I will submit my entire life to him, knowing that whatever he tells me to do will be excellent and for my good. Now, what I want us to see there, the rightly responding can only occur if you get to the place where you know and believe certain things. To know and trust that Jesus is God's good and perfect king. That's what the Bible says that he is. That's essentially what the word Lord means. All the prophecies from the Old Testament about a son of David, a king who would come to save and redeem. It's all teaching us that Jesus is God's good and perfect king. Now it's important that we think of him as good and perfect because if we don't, we won't want to submit to him. We won't want to follow him. We won't want to give him authority over our lives. So we have to be taught by the Bible, by the Word of God, the stories in it, the episodes in it that prove this is true, especially seeing the cross. You watch all that, you read all that, you engage with all of that, and you come to believe Jesus is God's good and perfect King. And that means Everything that he commands me to do is for my true good, my true ultimate happiness. And it means the only things he forbids and prohibits are things that hurt me and others. Things that vandalize the shalom that God has created. Until you really believe that, you might think following him is the right thing to do, but you still won't want to do it. And ultimately, we're all committed to our own happiness. That's kind of wired into us. And unless we truly believe that Jesus is the path to that happiness, we won't follow and we won't submit. So we need to keep hearing the gospel and the word and having spiritual conversations until we're convinced of something that is really true. Jesus is God's good and perfect king. Once I know and trust that to be true, I'll fall down before him and I'll submit my entire life to him. Also, because I know and trust that Jesus has died as the substitute and the sacrifice for my sins, I will completely depend on him for the forgiveness of my sins and eternal life. There again, we have to be convinced that my works, my obeying, is never going to get me right with God. That was my experience. Once the Holy Spirit started to convict me of my sin, of my in the wrongness, that I wasn't what I was supposed to, to be, then I said, well, then I'll start cleaning myself up, and I'll start becoming more religious. And I did. I mean, I was at church all the time, and I was studying the Bible and reading the Bible. But I was trying to do it by works. And I couldn't get through half a day remaining in obedience. And even my obedience was always tinged with self-interest. So I got no peace, no sense of assurance that now I was right with God. And that's when a glorious passage like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that I already quoted sounded like such good news. 
Doug, you're saved by undeserved, undeservable kindness, grace. And you receive it with the empty hand of faith and trust. I had to learn from the Bible, from the Word of God, that Jesus was the substitute and the sacrifice. Jesus paid it all. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you know, once that truth dawned on me, then there was peace. Then there was a sense of, I'm forgiven and I'm clean because the blood of Jesus Christ washes away every stain. We have to come to believe what the Bible and the gospel teach us about Jesus. Last week in New Horizons, <clears throat> pardon me, I haven't bellowed for a while in preaching, so I've got to be ready for the last two services. One of the things that we talked about in New Horizons last Sunday was as people come and they come to baptism classes or they come to church membership classes, or if I'm engaging someone in a spiritual and evangelistic conversation in another setting, and I'm trying to kind of figure out where they really are spiritually and in relationship to God. I've come to use one way or another what I call two spiritual diagnostic questions. I don't tell the people that's what's going on, but that's what is going on. And one of them I basically got from Evangelism Explosion way back in the 70s in DJ's, uh, D. James Kennedy. And that is to ask them, you know, and put it in these terms, if you were to die tonight and you were to go to the gates of heaven and God were to say to you, I'm not so sure St. Peter is guarding the gate like all the jokes say or something, but the Lord was going to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And if someone says, well, I tried to be a pretty good person and I really hope that my good works obey my bad uh, outweigh my bad works, etc., etc. If they give an answer like that, then what do I know? They haven't really understood the gospel yet and the way of salvation. They're not trusting in Jesus and his substitutionary sacrifice alone. They're not trusting in Jesus that Jesus paid it all. If they say, well, there was this time and I was in the woods and it got kind of foggy, and then the moon, and it really hit me, and it was a very, very deep spiritual experience, and that's when I felt like I really connected with God. You know, God can use those things, and that may well be, but it's like, that's not the answer to the question of how you know you're right with God. And I don't mean they have to say it in huge theological terms, but how can you really believe Deeply trust something that you don't in any meaningful sense understand or comprehend. But I tell you what, if someone and their life might be a mess still, and they may be caught up in besetting sins and addictions and struggles, but if they say to me, I'm trusting in Jesus and what he did on the cross, he took my place and he bore my sins instead of me, and he said that he would give as a free gift forgiveness for all who will put their trust in him. If that's their answer, I don't care if their life is still a mess. They've understood 
and they have believed the good news, and they have trusted Christ as Savior. But there's a second diagnostic question. It's built in to the very nature of who Jesus is. And that is to ask, are you willing, are you committed to aspire to obey Jesus in every area of your life? Are you making an unconditional surrender to the lordship, to the kingship, to the supreme authority of Jesus in your life? Because the Bible teaches that too. It's in the Great Commission language we've already, saw, we've already seen. Romans chapter 10 verse 9, remember once again, if you confess with your mouth, if you declare in an authoritative way, Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that connection was made because the resurrection of Jesus signals the lordship of Jesus and his supreme authority. But stories like the story of the rich young ruler that didn't end well, or Zacchaeus, whose conversion did end well. And all of those, there is becoming obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're entrusted, Romans 6:17. So the second diagnostic question is: are you willing and do you aspire to follow Jesus and obey all of his teachings and all of his commandments? Now, you may struggle the rest of your life, like I said, with a besetting sin or particular struggle. But you're wanting to get rid of it. You're wanting to honor and please the Lord in every way and give him first place in everything. I'll never forget that when I first became a Christian, I did a bazillion things wrong. And I did a bazillion things in a clumsy way. And I was sure... I mean, I was already a geek before I became a Christian, and once I became a Christian, now I was a religious geek. But I found a patch, a white patch with red letters, and I put it on my blue polyester jacket, and it said, Jesus first. Well, that might have been kind of geeky, I don't know, but it was right. Colossians 1 Everything is created by him, through him, and for him. And it all happens, the plan of salvation, according to Colossians 1, so that in everything he might have first place. So that's the second diagnostic question. Are you willing to give Jesus first place, as was read in the passage pleasing him in every way, in everything. And if someone, you know, you get the signal, well, I'm really involved in uh, kind of the occult, and it fascinates me. And yeah, I want to become a Christian, but I don't really want to give that up. And I'm like, well, the teachings of Jesus in the Bible says you have to give that up. And they say, yeah, I know, but that's something I really, really still want to be interested in. No. Coming to God on your own terms is pretty much the definition of sin and fallenness. Adam and Eve wanted God on their own terms. That's not an option. If someone's in a relationship that God's word clearly rules out, and they say, yep, I'd like to become a church member, I'd like to be baptized, I'd like to be known as a Christian, but I'm not going to give up this relationship, they're not submitting to Jesus as Lord. 
And that's part of the call of the gospel. And faithful evangelists, like we're supposed to be, don't hide that. Jesus never hid it. I mean, the rich young ruler, the way many of us do evangelism, will be like, oh, good, pray the prayer, get in, and then we'll work on that covetousness thing later. But let's not mention it, or we're going to lose a decision or whatever. Jesus is way more faithful to God and to the spiritual eternal destiny of other people than to do something like that. That's ministry malpractice, really. Why? Because you can't get into the kingdom unless you really and truly and sincerely and from the heart submit to the king. I wish that was as clear as it ought to be in the way that we think about these things. And so, if someone says, why should God let me into his heaven? Because of Jesus and the cross. And I want to follow Jesus in every way. So sign me up for the Bible studies. I'll be here to study and learn the Word of God because I love the Lord now. I'm not neutral. I'm not just kind of spiritually vaguely interested. I love the Lord now, and Jesus is my master. And I'm not going to be to try to be devoted to two things at once and have two masters. Jesus said that wasn't only wrong, it's impossible. No, I'm a follower. So yes, I'll commit to obeying Everything Jesus teaches me. And again, that person, when they answer that, may be a mess. But if they said yes to trusting Jesus alone as Savior and yes to following Jesus as Lord, then I'm like, go get the baptism robe. Go get ready to join the church. Because you've given credible evidence that you've really been converted. That you've really become a disciple of Jesus Christ. If this then is what a disciple is, then how are disciples made? And for the rest, I'll have to pick up the pace. How do we form people into disciples? And the question is even more poignant and pointed when you realize that the Bible doesn't say that before we come to Christ, what we are naturally is kind of it's certainly not basically good, and we're not even neutral. The Bible says that the unregenerate person, the person who's never been born again, who's never been converted, is a rebel. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6, the NIV says, the disobedient. But one translation puts it, God's rebel subjects. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 that the mind of the unregenerate person is not neutral, not benignly curious and accepting. The mind of the unsaved person is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Now again, I want to be as accurate as I can be. If you're talking about spirituality in kind of general terms and everybody gets to whatever they say, I like to think of God as this and like of God that, well, it's probably, you're not going to probably encounter much hostility in that kind of a setting. But as soon as you turn the language to, no, Jesus is the only way and Jesus is the only Savior 
And his lordship means complete authority over every area of your life. And you ought to and have to believe certain things. That's when you'll engage the hostility. And my guess is that was probably your own story, your own experience. Maybe that's your experience right now. You kind of like church and being connected and attached to church. And you kind of like spirituality on your own terms. And you'll keep engaging with Christian type people so long as those absolutes are never pressed and those claims never insisted upon. But when they are, you pull back, you retreat, you get annoyed, you get ticked off, you go to another congregation or another Bible study or another place. It can be that that's all symptomatic of this innate hostility to God and the supreme authority that we have before the gentle grace of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God softens our mind, pricks our conscience, and gets us to see our real spiritual condition and what it really means to come back to God in the way that we've been trying to describe this morning. So how in the world are you going to turn persons who are by nature hostile to God into those who love God and love Christ and are devoted followers of Him. Jesus and the apostles make it clear and it's demonstrated in the book of Acts that the disciples are made by the preaching and teaching of the gospel centered in the Word of God. That's how it happens. Every conversion is really a divine miracle. Every conversion is an output of divine power when the Holy Spirit takes away the blindness and the hardness. But He doesn't work apart from any means. He works through the Word and the Gospel that He's inspired. And you read the book of Acts and it uses language like they argue, they reason, and they persuade from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. That is, Jesus is the King who saves. And so we have spiritual conversations with people and we answer their questions. But it's always in our minds shaped by the Bible, shaped by the unique power of the Word of God. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.11, For this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. People have to be taught what it means to trust Jesus as Savior. They don't understand that. They're not even close to understanding that on their own, especially in our own time. People have to be taught what it means to submit to Jesus as Lord. We have to teach the gospel. And again, that's what something like Christianity Explored is all about, and it covers eight weeks. These things are important. They need to percolate in our minds and our understandings as we're counting the cost and seeking to make the right decision for Christ. We have to be taught the wisdom that leads to salvation. Every true conversion, as I said, is a miraculous display of the power of God. And the gospel and the word of God have a unique power. That's why when you read the book of Acts, it's a punctuated with, with reports that say, and so the word of God spread, the message of the Lord spread. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel message, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, 
You say, I don't know how I'll ever persuade, I don't know how I'll ever convince that person. Keep gospelizing them as best you can, humbly, lovingly, prayerfully. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, Paul says, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. James 1.18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And 1 Peter 1, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And so, what is the church supposed to be doing in the world? Making disciples, that's still our central task. There are other important things, and they're secondary, and they flow out of this, but this is the main thing. Good. Get that settled. But equally, get settled. How does that happen? What actually and practically are churches supposed to be doing to carry out that task? Teach the Bible. Explain the gospel. That's the only way it occurs. Preach the word, whether the time is favorable or not, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Teach them. Even as Christians, we're sanctified by the word of truth. This is the central calling and mission of the church, of our church, and every ministry of the church. The college ministry, the student ministry, the children's ministry, the men's ministry, the women's ministry. Thought it would close. Let me try to make all this clearer when it comes to application about our central calling and mission as Christ's church by emphasizing some examples of what it's not. Our calling as Christians and disciples of Christ in this lost world is most emphatically not to treat peoples like consumers and then work to provide them with the religious goods and services that they're shopping around for so they can feel spiritual on their own terms. That's not our calling. We are not called to be spiritual event planners so that our gatherings are essentially feel-good concerts and religious pick-me-up TED Talks. That's not our calling. It's not our job to maintain a schedule of merely wholesome and safe social events or to be local franchises of weddings and funerals are us. That is not our calling. Let me put it very bluntly. No one has ever been entertained into the kingdom of heaven. And no one ever will be, because entertainment is not the power of God unto salvation. Proclamation of the gospel word uniquely is. We are called to make disciples, to transform rebels and sinners into faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Our mission is to teach our fellow human beings that the most fundamental important purpose they have as human beings is to come to the place where they glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Teach people that every occasion you get. Let me finish with 2 Timothy chapter 4. Terrible times in the last days, Timothy. So what in the world is the church supposed to do? 
in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and because he is coming to rule as king I solemnly urge you to preach the message to insist upon proclaiming it whether the time seems right or not to convince reproach and encourage as you teach with great patience the time will come when people will not listen to sound doctrine to healthy and health producing teaching but will follow their own desires and will collect for themselves more and more teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear that's consumer Christianity and it's not Christianity they will turn away from listening to the truth and give their attention to fantasies but you must keep control of yourself in all circumstances don't fall for any of that endure suffering if that's what it involves do the work of the preacher and the teacher of the good news and perform your whole duty as a servant of God that's the task unfinished preach and teach the Word of God and the gospel of God prayerfully in the power of spirit to turn rebel sinners by God's grace into devoted followers of Jesus Christ let's pray father in heaven give us clarity about these things first what it means to be a Christian in the first place there is soul-destroying confusion about that but secondly including for us as a congregation how we carry out the task of making people into disciples and the only way that works through the uniquely powerful word of the gospel we pray in Christ's worthy name so that more and more people will give him first place in everything amen